Hi, I'm Lone Candle. <clears throat> Why should a particular drug be illegal? The reasons can be split into three categories. The harm to oneself, the harm to others, and the ability of a government ban to reduce those harms at a cost lower than the original harms. Focusing on harming oneself, why should others, even through legitimate democratic means, be able to tell anyone what they can do to themselves? Why should society be able to use the force of law to stop me from harming myself? It's helpful to start with an extreme act, suicide. Should I be allowed to commit suicide? Is it okay for another person to use force to stop me from intentionally killing myself? I say, for the most part, you should not be allowed to kill yourself. Outside of specific scenarios, no sane, healthy person commits suicide. Human beings have a basic instinct to survive. The continuation of living is a basic human goal. Unless you're being tortured or manipulated in such a way to force you to divulge life-protecting secrets, or unless you're terminally ill and will experience nothing but pain until death, it is not sane or rational to commit suicide. If you want to commit suicide and are not in one of these special scenarios, you're ill. You're not mentally well. We should not allow people in a state of mental disease to end their lives. By extension, we shouldn't allow people in a state of mental disease to do permanent damage to themselves, even if they survive. Outside of special circumstances, no one destroys their body or brain unless they are unwell. So, we should do what we can to stop people from committing suicide or seriously hurting themselves because doing so is more like life-saving treatment for an illness than stopping someone's sane, rational choice. Similarly, we should stop people from accidentally killing themselves out of ignorance. If someone is about to swallow a cyanide pill out of the belief that it's a harmless remedy for a stomach ache, we should forcefully slap that pill out of their hand. Society is justified in forcefully preventing people from accidentally killing or seriously harming themselves out of ignorance. Even if we agree that one should not be allowed to seriously harm themselves intentionally or out of ignorance, we still have to ask ourselves, do any drugs meet this standard? Is cocaine, heroin, or meth so dangerous that one would either have to be unwell or ignorant to take it? We need to distinguish between egregious harm and large harm. There are plenty of substances and actions that are likely to cause large harm, but the harm isn't so great that that action should be banned. Take sugar. Sugar is bad. I mean, a small amount of sugar is good, but the amount of sugar that we inadvertently consume in the modern world is far more than we need. The evidence for the many health problems that sugar causes is overwhelming. Consuming high amounts of sugar greatly increases the chance of an earlier death. By consuming too much sugar, you're likely taking many years off your life. Sugar causes real and serious harm. 
but it's not what I'm thinking of when I say egregious harm. So, simply proving that a drug will likely do large harm is not enough. Sugar causes large harm. If you're for banning substances for causing large harm, then you should be for banning or greatly limiting sugar. If you agree that the horrible long-term effects of sugar don't justify a sugar ban or some great limitation on sugar, then simply proving the long-term detriment of a particular drug is not enough to justify banning it. The reason we intuitively think sugar should be allowed is because we know that people who consume unhealthy amounts of sugar can still function in life for a long time, won't die from sugar-facilitated illnesses until they are old, and won't be in long-term sugar-induced pain unless they get a sugar-related illness, which again, most likely won't be until they're old. So, we're looking for egregious self-harm that causes soon death, acute, great, and long-term pain, or that stops someone from living a functional life. A facilitator of these egregious harms is the addictive nature of a substance. Addiction makes quitting a drug extremely difficult. Some drugs may rarely cause great harm on one or a few uses, but because they're addictive, those few uses still directly cause great harm by way of addiction. I'm not counting addiction as an egregious harm in and of itself. Addiction is bad. It alters your freedom by coercing you to use and pay for a drug, even if you would prefer not to. But addiction by itself is not egregious. If you're addicted to caffeine or some other substance that has relatively minor harms, this is wholly different than addiction to something that destroys your ability to function, that drastically shortens your life, or that causes great and long-term pain. For the purposes of banning a substance, addiction only matters if it facilitates egregious harm. I won't cover every drug known to man but we'll look into some of the biggest names. I'm roughly looking at them in order of most harmful to least harmful, from most risky to least risky. If we can decide that the harm of even the worst drug is not great enough to ban, then the case for the legal status of less harmful drugs should be intuitive. Before I go drug by drug, let's cover some scores and rankings of these drugs from most to least dangerous. If you look into this, be careful about drug death rates. Often, death rates are reported per 100,000 people in the population, not per an amount of people who actually use the drug. So, a per population death rate isn't the percentage of people who take a drug who die, but just the percentage of the population who die of a certain drug. This is largely determined by how many people use the drug in the first place. A famous UK Lancet study had experts score the different harms of different drugs. On self-harm, this was the order from most to least harm. Crack cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, alcohol, cocaine, tobacco, cannabis, ecstasy, mushrooms. An issue with these scores is there doesn't seem to be much of a separation for short-term or long-term harm. Dying from cancer in 30 years is much less harm than dying of an overdose in a couple years. If we only look at mortality, the order from most to least harm changes a bit. Heroin, alcohol, tobacco, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, cocaine, ecstasy, cannabis, mushrooms. 
Another study used 40 drug experts from the EU to score drugs on 16 harm criteria. Their results correlated well with that of the UK panel. For a 2010 study, a Dutch expert panel created a risk assessment of different drugs. Excellently, they created an acute and chronic harm measure, which allows us to differentiate between the extreme deadliness of smoking tobacco over a long period of time and the quicker damage done by drugs more prone to overdose. The results of their physical harm acute toxicity score, acute meaning the short-term physical harm, is as follows. Crack cocaine was the highest at 2.39, followed by heroin at 2.37, meth was 2.03, cocaine 1.95, alcohol 1.89, ecstasy 1.34, magic mushrooms 0.89, cannabis 0.84, and tobacco 0.53. The physical harm chronic toxicity scores, meaning long-term, are tobacco 2.89, Crack cocaine, 2.63, alcohol, 2.47, meth, 2.18, cocaine, 2.05, heroin, 2.03, cannabis, 1.53, ecstasy, 1.34, and magic mushrooms, 0.13. Notice that tobacco jumped from a 0.53 acute score to a 2.89 chronic score. A workshop involving 25 Australian drug experts scored drugs on a level of harm. Fentanyls were the most harmful to users with a score of 50. Heroin had a score of 45, and crystal meth, 42. Using a survey of 101 German addiction medicine physicians and another survey of 36 addiction medicine physicians, a study created a harm rank of 33 psychoactive substances. Methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, and alcohol were considered particularly harmful. Cannabis was ranked in the middle. Synthetic cannabinoids were categorized as most harmful. One way to look at the danger of taking a drug is the ratio of fatal dose to effective dose, meaning the dose it typically requires to kill you and the dose it typically requires to get high. The smaller this number, the easier it is to overdose. Per one calculation, heroin is the easiest to overdose with a ratio of 5. Alcohol has a score of 10, cocaine 15, ecstasy 16, psilocybin 1000, and marijuana over 1000. So, you have to take way too much marijuana or magic mushrooms to fatally overdose, while it's relatively easy to fatally overdose on ecstasy, cocaine, and alcohol, and the easiest to overdose on heroin. By the way, I'm using psilocybin and mushrooms interchangeably. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. A similar measure looks at the amount a person would normally take compared to the amount that typically kills a person. Lower scores are worse. The order from worse to least bad is alcohol, heroin, cocaine, nicotine, ecstasy, meth, THC. According to this, marijuana is 114 times safer than alcohol. The margin of exposure, MOE, is the ratio of the dose where a measurable adverse effect is first observed, and the estimated human intake. The lower the number, the riskier the substance. These have been estimated for several drugs. Alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, and heroin all fell under the high-risk category, while THC was considered safe. The MOE results are preliminary due to uncertainty in the data. The Global Drug Survey asked everyone who took a substance in the last 12 months 
whether they had sought emergency medical treatment following use during that time. The 2021 numbers were as follows. The highest percentage is heroin. Of all people who used heroin in the 12 months leading up to taking the survey, during that time, 10% of them sought emergency medical treatment following the use of heroin. For meth, that number was 5.4%. Alcohol, 1.2%. Cocaine, 1%. Cannabis, 0.6% ecstasy 0.5%, mushrooms 0.2%. Now, some drugs people use more often than others, and that means there may have been more opportunity to have an emergency situation, rather than just because the drug is more dangerous. Also, fentanyl should be distorting some of these numbers, especially heroin, although none of these are clean because they all include drug combinations. According to one study, after 30 years of use, 16% of heroin users died, 6.5% of cocaine users died, and 1.5% of meth users died. This same study concluded that, quote, taking into account the correlations among subjects within the same study for time to event, substance, and alcohol data simultaneously, heroin users had a significantly higher risk of death than cocaine and meth users, end quote. Some studies technically measure dependence rather than addiction. Addiction is commonly defined as compulsive drug use despite it causing harm, while dependence means one's body has adapted to a drug and requires more of it to gain the same effect, and stopping the use of the drug will cause withdrawal symptoms. Dependence often goes along with addiction. They are not the same thing, but are related. The Dutch study created dependence scores that are as follows. Heroin, 2.89 crack cocaine, 2.82, tobacco, 2.82, meth, 2.24, alcohol, 2.13, cocaine, 2.13, cannabis, 1.13, ecstasy, 0.61, and magic mushrooms, 0.03. A ratio relating to addiction is the capture ratio, the proportion of people who try a drug who will become physiologically or psychologically dependent. By this measure, heroin and meth are the most addictive. Cocaine, Nicotine and alcohol are in the next bucket, followed by marijuana. The chances of becoming dependent on hallucinogens like psilocybin are little to none. Studies have found that the percentage of people who have used a drug who have developed problematic drug use, a concept similar to dependence and addiction, are over 30% for tobacco, about 25% for heroin, over 15% for cocaine, about 15% for alcohol, about 10% for stimulants and cannabis, and about 7% for psychedelics and meth. It's possible that one factor causing drugs with less immediate harms to be abused is that they have less immediate harm so people are less careful with them, meaning their high numbers may be partially caused by their perceived lower harms and not their inherent addictive qualities. Looking at these and other sources, I think heroin is arguably the most addictive, followed by a bucket of cocaine, meth, tobacco, and alcohol. Then, in order, cannabis, ecstasy, and magic mushrooms. Based on these variety of summary metrics, of the drugs I'll cover, I believe the order of most dangerous to least, the most likely to cause egregious harm to least likely to cause egregious harm, prioritizing sooner harm over later harm is heroin, meth, cocaine, alcohol, tobacco, ecstasy, marijuana, then magic mushrooms. On average, any one person is putting themselves 
at greater risk of egregious harm by taking heroin than by taking marijuana. Why the hell would anyone do heroin? Heroin blocks both physical and emotional pain, relaxes the user, can give relief, can create an out-of-body sensation, and creates euphoria. Some say that heroin gives them a sensation of warmth and safety. The experience can be so pleasurable and wonderful that it's like a religious experience that takes away the fears, pain, and concerns of the world. The problem is, it's so good that the brain rewires, and for some, it wants nothing in life but heroin. And it's unlikely that a user will ever get as good a high as the first time. Heroin's biggest threat is deadly overdoses, and the risk increases the longer one uses due to the tolerance to the high increasing faster than the tolerance to the respiratory effects. Heroin doesn't have the same level of long-term health issues as tobacco, but has bad overdose risks. In a heroin overdose, the person can't help but sleep, and their organs operate incredibly slowly. The heart and lungs can actually stop working, with the brain lacking oxygen, brain damage results, causing a coma or death. Heroin can also cause heart rhythm problems that may prevent the heart from pumping enough blood, negatively affecting other organs. The heart not pumping enough blood can also cause a backup in the veins, which can make breathing hard or cause a heart attack or kidney failure. Heroin is more dangerous when mixed with other drugs. Many deaths come from relapses, People either forget how much they can handle or can't survive the same dosage they took before they quit. This results in overdose and death. Heroin is so powerful that it makes suicide easier. Many suicides are not successful, so the easier it is for one to kill himself, the more likely he will die. A study estimated that 81% of suicides that involved opioids would have not been fatal if not for opioids. The number is 34% for alcohol. Some ideal numbers to determine the danger of taking heroin would be one's chance of death in the next five years or one's chance of death in the next year or how many years you could expect to live after starting heroin. As far as I can tell, reliable numbers on these don't exist. What I do have is a variety of estimates on the number of Americans who have used heroin in a year and the number of deaths from heroin, as well as studies that track heroin users over time. In both situations, I can get a chance of death or chance of overdose death per year of using heroin. If you're using heroin in a given year, your chance of dying from heroin-related death in that year is 2.01%. However, this number includes heroin mixed with other more dangerous opioids like fentanyl. If we assume that all those who died from heroin combined with other opioids would have lived if they had heroin alone, the yearly chance of dying from a heroin-involved overdose when taking heroin without another opioid is 0.67%. Studies that follow groups of heroin users show a death rate of 0.53 to 0.55%. So, very roughly, we can say that if you use heroin in a given year and you did not combine it with fentanyl, your chance of dying is about 0.6%. That sounds like a low chance. But when we're talking about death, it's very high. That is a 1 in 167 chance of dying. If there was a 1 in 167 chance of a plane going down, you'd be a fool to get on that plane. There are 45,000 FAA serviced flights a day. So if 1 in 167 of them crashed, 
That would be 270 crashes every day, killing 17,400 passengers daily, assuming none of the passengers survived the crashes. We wouldn't have an airline industry if flying carried a 0.6% chance of death. A 0.6% chance of death is a high mortality rate, and it would make no sense to take such a risk without high reward. However, taking heroin is not like playing Russian roulette. If you put a bullet in a six-shooter and spin the wheel, then pull the trigger with the barrel aimed at your brain, there is a 1 in 6 chance of death. If someone else does it, there is a 1 in 6 chance of death. Everyone who plays Russian roulette with a fresh spin has a 1 in 6 chance of death. This is not the case with drugs. Some people are more vulnerable to abuse, addiction, dependence, and death than others. If you have strict rules on when and how you use heroin, your chance of death is much less. So, even if my .6 number is perfectly accurate, it is not any one individual heroin user's chance of death, but the average user's chance. That said, no one fully knows their ability to resist addiction, to survive a drug, or to maintain strict rules on its use. Everyone is taking a considerable risk when using heroin. Estimating an average gives us some kind of estimate of the risk of death one faces by using heroin, and that yearly risk is 0.6%. Remember, that is 0.6% each year of use, so the chance of death over a longer period is much higher. And this estimate is only for death, not having your life ruined or any other heavy risk one takes when using heroin. Heroin is incredibly addictive. Withdrawal effects include flu-like symptoms, depression, insomnia, anxiety, pain, vomiting, spasms, hot and cold flashes, and congestion. These miseries can last for weeks. Only about half of heroin users successfully quit after 30 years, and relapses are common. According to Dr. Carl Hart, addiction affects only 10-30% to of heroin users. About 25% of users develop problematic drug use. Surveys of heroin users show that some can use while maintaining functionality in their lives. They use a variety of strategies to avoid dependence or to control their dependence, usually following rules that limit the frequency of use. So, heroin use doesn't automatically lead to dependence, and heroin use doesn't automatically destroy a person's life. There's a Columbia professor named Dr. Carl Hart who says he uses heroin and yet is in good health and leads a successful and functional life. He says it's less toxic on his liver than alcohol and is good at creating euphoria, and that heroin helps him think about how his behaviors impact other people and then make adjustments accordingly. Maybe some people can use heroin responsibly. However, even if the lowest number is right and 10% of heroin users get addicted, that's incredibly high. You're going to temporarily get great pleasure in exchange for a 1 in 10 chance of a life-ruining addiction. That sounds like a horrible deal. So, are the risks of heroin so egregious that you'd have to be ignorant or unwell to take it? Taking heroin is incredibly risky and foolish. The standard recommendation should be to stay away from the drug. But, if someone decides that they can put rules in place to reduce the chance of egregious harm far below the average, to the point where they are highly unlikely to suffer the worst harms, should society ban that opportunity? Surveys and Dr. Hart suggest that this is possible. However, because heroin is so addictive and so prone to overdose, no one can confidently say that they'll avoid the egregious harms. We need to make sure we follow Dr. Hart. 
It wouldn't surprise me if some years from now we find him entering rehab because in the end, he couldn't safely handle heroin. It's hard for me to advocate the government stopping people I don't even know from taking a substance that they choose to take, especially when people can take it and come out just fine on the other end. I don't know what's going on in someone else's life, and maybe the Jesus-like embrace of heroin will help some people out. Maybe it can help them be a better person. Should we really stop responsible heroin users from using just because many others will abuse it? Why limit one person's freedom to take an action because another's freedom to take that action will result in their death? However, the risks of heroin are really high. What percentage of heroin users are truly making a rational choice? And what percentage are ignorant about the full risks or are unwell mentally? At some point, the risks of dependence or death are so high that I have trouble being sympathetic toward anyone's logic of why it helps them personally. Just because some people survive a great risk doesn't mean it was a good decision before knowing the results. However, just because I can't understand one's reasoning for an action doesn't mean the actions are done out of ignorance or mental illness. My standard for banning a substance for the sake of self-harm was that the chance of egregious harm was so high that you'd have to be unwell or ignorant to take the drug. Well, a responsible adult who understands the risks and sets careful rules can take heroin at minimal risk. It doesn't matter that many who think they are this person are wrong, because if some people are this person, then taking heroin is not equivalent to egregious harm caused by mental illness or ignorance. Thus, on only self-harm grounds, I'm against banning heroin. I'm very close to saying it's too risky and everyone who takes it is a fool, but the data and key examples show that people can do it safely and it's plausible that some people can accurately judge that they are the type of person who can take heroin and have it add a net benefit to their lives. The government shouldn't stop me from doing something because some other person will do it irresponsibly and kill themselves in the process. Legalize heroin. I can see an argument where someone says, wait, if you're really for letting people do whatever they want, whatever the risks to themselves, then you should be against all safety regulations. People should be able to take whatever risks they want when it comes to the preparation of food or driving a cheaply made dangerous automobile. They understand the risk and it's their choice. However, there are at least two problems with this concern. One, limiting the excess danger of an activity isn't the same as banning the activity. Banning a particular subproduct isn't the same as banning the substance. Two, we should take more care to protect people from basic, close to necessary activities than side activities that aren't needed to function. I want people to eat. People should be able to drive cars. And people should be able to do heroin. All three of these activities carry a risk of self-harm. That there is a risk doesn't justify banning the activity, but it does justify banning excess risk. Uncleanliness of a restaurant is a danger to the customers, so I don't have an objection to codes preventing death or illness from these factors. Cars with too little safety features make driving more dangerous than is necessary to do the core goal of driving, so I have no problem with regulations making cars safer. Likewise, the inherent danger of doing heroin should be limited to that inherent danger, so I'm for regulations that minimize the danger of heroin use. I'm for regulating heroin. I'm against banning it. Heroin shouldn't be allowed in anything portrayed as normal food. Heroin shouldn't be sold to children. 
Heroin should be carefully tested so that it contains the indicated amount and should have large labels warning of the dangers. Education campaigns should teach people of the risks, and only responsible sellers should be allowed to sell such a dangerous drug. I'm against banning a substance, not common sense regulation. I'm for using regulations to reduce the dangers of driving, eating, and doing heroin, but not for outright banning any of these activities. Another way to think of this is that I'm against banning general categories like heroin and automobiles, but specific products that are unnecessarily dangerous for the goals these products help us achieve, I'm open to banning them. So let's ban heroin that isn't clearly dosed. Let's ban heroin mixed with unknown substances. Let's require seatbelts in cars. In one sense, that is banning cars without seatbelts. But I see this as banning particular sub-products that are unnecessarily dangerous rather than a product category or substance outright. This leads to the second problem with the counterargument. We should have a higher standard for necessary or basic functional activities than for recreational or side activities. One must eat to live. Many people need a car to get to the store and work. No one needs to do heroin. The level of necessity of driving is far higher than that of doing heroin. If someone makes a damaging or deadly mistake with a side activity, I have less sympathy for them than if they make a similar mistake with a more needed activity. One has the time and lack of pressure to consider the dangers and risks of a side activity. There's no excuse for not fully educating yourself. If someone can't handle the information required, they can just not take part in the activity. If you really can't understand the risks of heroin, then just don't do heroin. If you can't understand the safety features of a car, well, you still need to get to work, pick up your kid from school, and drive to the grocery store. You're still getting that car. The practical limitations of not getting a car are much greater than the practical and basic limitations of not doing heroin. Even more so with food. You must eat to live. Thus, the threshold should be lower for basic protections that protect us from unnecessarily dangerous cars and food compared to recreational drugs. If one needs the drugs for medical purposes, this could put the drug into the more needed category. But in this case, a doctor can recommend the drug, and it is them that understands the benefits and risks on our behalf. Not that you shouldn't have a basic understanding, but the more precise understanding is done by the medical professional. Also a note on regulation. I'm for light regulations. The burden of evidence and logic should be on adding a regulation, meaning we should err on the side of less regulation compared to more. I don't want to give the sense that I'm suggesting we just add regulations because it seems like maybe it would help. Drugs are harmful and can kill you, but consider other risky activities. Think of horse riding. Professor David Nutt made up the word equacy. Equacy is equine addiction syndrome. People love horse riding so much that they are willing to risk the dangerous consequences of falling off or under the horse. Horse riding is incredibly dangerous. Every year in the United States, horse riding causes about 11,500 cases of traumatic head injury and more than 100,000 horse-related injuries. Equacy is addicting because of the adrenaline and endorphins that riding releases. In the UK, about 10 people a year die from horse riding. Especially if you jump, horse riding is more dangerous than ecstasy. Yet, ecstasy is illegal and horse riding is not. There are plenty of activities that have serious risks. 
no one needs to ride a motorcycle, and riding one is dangerous. Should we ban them? People drown in pools. Pools are dangerous and deadly. They are just for pleasure. No one needs a pool. If they are just for pleasure and they get people killed, should we ban pools? If we allow people to swim in the ocean, inevitably, some will be injured and killed by sharks. Maybe we should ban that. Skiing, snowboarding, bicycling, all deadly. We don't ban things just because there is a risk of injury or death. Drugs should not be a special exception. Why do methamphetamines? Well, meth causes wakefulness, more energy, increased focus, clarity, less appetite, less inhibitions, more confidence, euphoria, and enhanced sex. Meth can help people socialize and have fun, which can strengthen bonds among people and lead to better friendships and happiness. Meth increases blood pressure and heart rate, which can lead to heart attack or stroke. Additionally, it can cause irregular heartbeat, which increases the chances of seizures. Meth can also make one violent, as well as create respiratory distress, hypothermia, and convulsions. These effects can cause brain damage. Meth can make sleep difficult, which can increase the risk of heart disease, cognitive deficits, and mood swings. Meth has been linked to cognitive impairments, confusion, anxiety, paranoia, and psychosis. In 2019, if you take the number of people who died from psychostimulants that were primarily meth, and divide that by the number of people who took meth in the past year, you get a death rate of 0.93%. If we assume that all the deaths of those who mixed meth with opioids, not including methadone, would have lived if not for this mixing, then you get a death rate of 0.45%. Very roughly, if you do meth without opioids, your chance of dying from a meth-related overdose in a year is 0.45%. That number for heroin was 0.67%. A 0.45% chance of death in a given year is a high chance. If 0.45% of daily FAA service plane flights went down in deadly crashes, killing all passengers, that would be 203 downed planes a day, resulting in 13,050 deaths. No one would get on a plane with a 0.45% chance of death, unless it was a true emergency. It doesn't make sense to take meth when the chance of overdose is so high. And remember, that's the chance of meth-related death every year. However, that's the average chance. If one uses more responsibly, the chances are lower. That said, you may not know how responsible you'll be, and if addiction grabs you, your life is likely ruined. Meth is very addictive. Withdrawal includes depression, suicide, and drug cravings. However, according to Dr. Carl Hart, addiction affects only 10 to 30% of meth users. Other percentages I've seen are 7 and 10%. Even a 7% chance of problematic drug use is high when this problematic use can ruin your life. For every measure I looked at except one, that one being the Dutch study's long-term harm score, heroin is more dangerous than meth. I said heroin is incredibly stupid to do, and it doesn't seem like a reasonable choice to me. But it's plausible that some responsible people can know themselves enough to estimate that they can use the drug in limited circumstances and have well below the average chance of egregious harm. So the drug should remain legal, at least on self-harm grounds. I feel the same about meth. Like heroin, it's easy to kill yourself or to get addicted. You'd have to be a fool to do meth. But it's not the same as blowing your brains out. Is there a subset of people able to responsibly use meth without the devastating consequences? I think so. 
You're probably fooling yourself if you think you're one of those people, but you might not be fooling yourself. Again, I don't see the risks of egregious self-harm as high enough to ban meth. For simplicity and brevity, I'm doing crack and cocaine together. Crack is the rock form of cocaine and is usually smoked while cocaine is snorted, smoked, or injected. Crack and powder cocaine are both cocaine and affect the body similarly. Crack is considered more dangerous because the smoking of it creates a shorter high, which means there's more incentive to do more of it, increasing the chances of overdose and addiction. Cocaine provides euphoria, excitement, self-confidence, higher self-esteem, energy, libido, wakefulness, and sociability. This can increase the pleasure one gets from partying. It can also improve concentration and creativity, as well as allow one to drink longer. Cocaine stimulates the brain similar to how a real accomplishment would. However, the benefits don't last long. Cocaine can help people socialize and have fun, which can strengthen bonds among people and lead to better friendships and happiness. Cocaine increases blood pressure and heart rate, which increases the chance of heart attack or stroke. One is 23 times more likely to have a heart attack after using cocaine. The risk is greatest for older adults with cardiovascular disease. Overdose can also cause respiratory arrest and sudden death. Cocaine makes seizures more likely. For some people, cocaine highs cause angry outbursts, violence, restlessness, hyperactivity, anxiety, paranoia, or hallucinations. Mixing cocaine with other drugs increases the risk of overdose and death. Cocaine facilitates risky behavior including risky sexual behavior that can lead to STDs like HIV. Coming down from a cocaine high can cause depression, and thoughts of suicide, or even suicide itself. The end of a high can make one's self-esteem lower. Cocaine can create the following long-term health problems. Loss of smell, nosebleeds, runny nose, difficulty swallowing, cough, asthma, respiratory distress, higher infection risk, severe bowel decay, and reduced blood flow. The type of issue depends on how one takes it, snorting, smoking, or by mouth. Other long-term problems are malnourishment due to cocaine decreasing appetite, movement disorders, Parkinson's disease, irritability, restlessness, paranoia, and auditory hallucinations. The long-term risks are less than that of tobacco, but the short-term risks are high. Cocaine is addictive and creates tolerance, which makes people need larger doses to get the same high. Withdrawal can cause depression, fatigue, increased appetite, bad dreams and insomnia, and slowed thinking. Over 15% of people who try cocaine develop problematic drug use. For heroin, that number was 25%. How confident are you that you'll be able to only use responsibly and not develop anything like addiction? Can you really know that in advance? If not, then the 15% chance number may apply to you. It may apply to everyone. It's a risky choice. In 2019, if you take the number of people who died from cocaine and divide that by the number of people who took cocaine in the past year, you get a death rate of 0.23%. If we assume that all the deaths of those who mixed cocaine and opioids would have lived if not for this mixing, then you get a death rate of 0.06%. Very roughly, if you take cocaine without opioids, your chance of dying from a cocaine-related overdose in a year is 0.06%. That number for heroin was 0.67%, and for meth was 0.45%. A 0.06% chance of death in a given year is a high chance. If 0.06% of 
of FAA service flights went down in deadly crashes, killing all passengers. Each day, that would be 27 downed planes, resulting in 1,740 deaths. No one would get on a plane with a 0.06% chance of death unless it was a true emergency. It doesn't make sense to take cocaine when the chance of overdose is so high. And 0.06% is the chance of cocaine-related death per year. So your chance of dying from cocaine is higher, and there are plenty of horrible consequences other than outright death. Again, 0.06% is the average chance. If one uses it more responsibly, the chances are lower. However, you may not know how responsible you'll be, and if addiction grabs you, your life is likely ruined. Roughly summarizing the variety of attempts to rank or score the harm of different drugs, cocaine isn't as risky as heroin, but is about as bad as meth. When crack is separated from powder cocaine, crack tends to score higher than both meth and powder cocaine. Can some people have some fun partying with cocaine and then move on with their lives with little harm? Yes. Is cocaine super dangerous and foolish to even try? Yes. The risks are so high that I almost want to be for outlawing the drug, but the risks are manageable enough that a cocaine ban means government power stopping some people from taking actions that would benefit them. One doesn't need to be ignorant or mentally ill to use cocaine. For the third time, I'm tentatively for legalization when only viewing the issue from a self-harm perspective. To me, no handful of fun or focused periods makes the risks of cocaine worth it. I can't see that as reasonable. But maybe I just can't get out of my risk-adverse tunnel vision. And it's clear from the data and anecdotes that people can use cocaine, have some fun, and be just fine. I won't speak too much on alcohol because we all should know the short-term and long-term risks and benefits of alcohol. Alcohol can cause organ damage, with the liver being at most risk. Alcohol interacts with other drugs, making their risks more dangerous. Drug experts generally consider marijuana safer than alcohol. A Columbia University study found that alcohol increases the chances of a fatal traffic accident by almost 14 times, and marijuana only nearly two times. If alcohol is combined with another drug, the risk is increased to over 23 times. A review of research found that alcohol plays a causal role in injury, including interpersonal violence, suicide and self-harm, road injuries, other transportation injuries, drowning, falling, fire and heat injuries, poisoning, and others. Based on the number of people who used alcohol in a year and the number of acute alcohol-attributable deaths due to excessive alcohol use, when one drinks alcohol in a year, they have a 0.03% chance of dying that year from alcohol. This is a rough number, and the chance is much higher if you drink to excess and lower if you drink in moderation. But this gives us a comparable number to the overdose estimates of heroin, meth, and cocaine, which respectively are 0.67%, 0.45%, and 0.06%. If 0.03% of plane flights in a day crashed, that would mean 14 crashes with 870 dead a day. 0.03% is way too risky. That chance is greatly reduced by moderation, so your real chance of dying in a year because you drink alcohol is likely much lower. Alcohol can create dependency, especially when drinking is heavy or when binge drinking is involved. Withdrawal symptoms that range from mild to life-threatening are anxiety, depression, insomnia, tremors, sweating, irregular heart rate, hypertension, 
nausea and vomiting, headaches, abdominal pain, psychosis, and seizures. I love the Dutch study because the experts have an acute toxicity score separate from their long-term damage score. If I have to categorize alcohol with other drugs, it goes with meth and cocaine, not ecstasy and marijuana. Alcohol's score was 0.06 points lower than cocaine, 0.14 points lower than meth, and 0.48 lower than heroin. It was 0.55 points higher than ecstasy and 1.05 higher than cannabis, meaning alcohol is closer to being as bad for one's immediate self to heroin than ecstasy or marijuana is to alcohol. Looking at the variety of ways to score or rank drugs on harm, alcohol is regularly in this top group and is often measured as more dangerous than cocaine. On dependence, alcohol is in the same bucket as powder cocaine and not far behind meth. About 15% of people who drink alcohol will become problematic users. I'm really torn on alcohol. My intuition is telling me alcohol must not be as harmful as cocaine and meth, but the studies and data I'm looking at tell me otherwise. I don't know whether to trust my intuition or these variety of crude analyses. If these analyses are right, then my basic concept of alcohol being clearly less dangerous than meth and cocaine is way off. This isn't too surprising. When cocaine or meth are mentioned, it's usually in the cases of crime, overdoses, junkies, or warnings. When I see alcohol, it's usually in an advertisement paid for by companies who want me to buy alcohol, or just at the bar when some friends are having a drink. It's not crazy to think that my intuitions on the relative dangers of alcohol compared to meth and cocaine have been shoved far away from reality by a culture that celebrates a long history of alcohol while shunning cocaine and meth as dangerous and subversive. I'm honestly not sure if my intuition is this far off, but straight on the analyses, I can't say that alcohol is clearly less harmful than cocaine and meth. Alcohol's acute harm scores are just behind these other drugs. Its chance at needing emergency medical treatment is about the same as cocaine, although lower than meth and heroin. On measures gauging how easy it is to overdose relative to a normal dose to feel the effects, alcohol is worse than cocaine and maybe worse than meth. Chance of death from the drug, if taken in the past 12 months, is 0.03 percentage points behind cocaine, although further behind meth. Alcohol isn't any less addictive than cocaine, scoring equal to cocaine on dependence, and just a bit behind meth. The capture ratio measure of addiction puts alcohol in the same bucket as cocaine. A higher percentage of alcohol users develop problematic use of the drug than meth users, and almost the same percentage as cocaine users. Now, on two key metrics, meth seems to pull away. A 0.45% of meth users die from meth-related causes in a year, compared to 0.06% and 0.03% for cocaine and alcohol. 5.4% of meth users in a year sought medical treatment following the drug's use, compared to 1.2% for alcohol and 1% for cocaine. While alcohol may not require huge extra amounts to overdose, and expert scores may put them close to meth, on actual death and needing emergency medical care, meth is worse. How much of this worseness is due to meth being illegal and more likely to be inconsistent while alcohol is legal and you are extremely likely to get the amount of alcohol on a bottle's label? I don't know, but this increases the shadow of uncertainty. I've got to put the self-harm risk of alcohol pretty close to powder cocaine, and even pretty close to meth, yet my mind is strongly urging me to put alcohol in a safer bucket. I want to say alcohol should be legal, 
And if alcohol really is about the same dangers as cocaine, then cocaine should be legal too. Nicotine creates pleasant sensations and improves mood and cognition. Tobacco is the number one cause of lung cancer and increases the risk of heart attack, stroke, diabetes, leukemia, cardiovascular diseases, respiratory diseases, kidney disease, and intestinal disease. The nicotine in tobacco is incredibly addictive. Withdrawal can cause irritability, higher appetite, anxiety, depression, difficulty concentrating, and cravings. I'm not going to dwell on tobacco. Its long-term effects are devastating, but short-term, it's relatively safe. It should be legal on self-harm grounds. Ecstasy causes a strong sense of well-being and positivity, sociability, emotional warmth, perception changes, and facilitates intense physical activity. Ecstasy can help people socialize and have fun, which can strengthen bonds among people and lead to better friendships and happiness. Ecstasy can cause dehydration and elevated body heat, which can lead to stroke, especially in a party or rave where people are packed in close and are strenuously physically active. Increased blood pressure, heart rate, nausea, restlessness, and psychotic breakdowns can also result from ecstasy use. People with a history of mental illness are the most vulnerable to psychotic breakdowns. Most ecstasy deaths are caused by multiple factors and not just ecstasy. Most deaths that are possibly related to ecstasy involve multiple drugs. Ecstasy facilitates risky sexual acts. The risk of addiction to ecstasy is low. Ecstasy, also called Molly and MDMA, has a relatively low risk of self-harm and those can be greatly reduced with education. If I think heroin should be legal on self-harm grounds, then surely ecstasy should. And if you think alcohol should be legal on self-harm grounds, then ecstasy should be too. Cannabis or marijuana may reduce premature death by decreasing obesity, diabetes mellitus, mortality from traumatic brain injury, alcohol and prescription drug use, driving fatalities, and opioid overdose. A 2017 analysis estimated that 23,500 to 47,500 deaths could be prevented annually if medical marijuana was legal nationwide. These estimates should be taken with a heavy grain of salt. Cannabis use may help fight obesity by reducing energy storage and increasing metabolic rates. However, studies don't consistently find a link between obesity and cannabis use. A review of scientific papers found evidence that marijuana creates harm in the form of mental health, brain changes, cognitive outcomes, pregnancy issues, and testicular cancer. A review of longitudinal studies looking for relationships between cannabis and symptoms of people with anxiety or mood disorder found that 11 of 12 studies showed recent cannabis use was positively associated with symptom levels. 10 of the studies also found cannabis associated with less improvement from treatment. Studies have linked adolescent marijuana use with cognitive deficiencies and decreased education outcomes. Marijuana can cause overdose deaths, but they are rare and usually in combination with other substances. Those with psychotic illness are at the most risk of psychotic symptoms caused by the drug. Some research suggests that those with psychotic disorders may be more likely to use marijuana in the first place. A literature review found that cannabis dependence and addiction exist. Driving while under the influence is not safe. 
Marijuana use is associated with global underachievement. Marijuana puts one at risk of psychotic illness and can make some mental health issues worse. And that cannabis sometimes acts as a gateway drug. Most of these issues are worse when marijuana use starts in adolescence. For every 11 people who try cannabis, one will become dependent at some point, with this risk doubling for those who start cannabis use in adolescence. A quarter to a half of daily users become dependent. Certain types of cannabis have a higher risk of dependence and psychosis than other types. The ideas that marijuana has no negative health effects and that it causes no addiction or dependency are myths. The evidence is there. Marijuana comes with harms and risks. That said, those risks are clearly less than alcohol and tobacco, which are legal. If the more harmful substances of alcohol and tobacco are legal, then the less harmful substance of marijuana should be too. In a controlled setting, psilocybin can help with mental health issues. Some say that their mushroom trips have helped expand their minds, made them see things about the world that they wouldn't on their own, and helped them be better people. The main risk is bad or nightmarish trips. Bad trips can have a permanent negative effect on people who are vulnerable to mental issues. Magic mushrooms can cause psychotic episodes, a loss of reality, and long-term psychological damage. The risks are highest for those with a family history of mental health issues and those also using other drugs. It can also cause hallucinogen persisting perception disorder where people have vision problems, sometimes involving seeing flashes of colored dots, shimmering lights, and shakiness. While high, one is at risk of a stupid accident. There is almost no risk of overdose or addiction. And only rarely does psilocybin cause major mental or physical health problems. A 2007 Dutch study on the risk of magic mushrooms concluded that the risk of dependence was low, acute toxicity was moderate, chronic toxicity was low, and that magic mushroom use is relatively safe with only a few and relatively mild adverse effects. The researchers remained concerned about unpredictable panic attacks and flashbacks, even though their prevalence was low. The metrics discussed earlier make clear. Magic mushrooms are the safest drug I'm looking at. Its psychoactive effects mean it shouldn't be in normal food and should be clearly identified and sold separately from normal groceries. However, magic mushrooms should definitely be legal. To sum up, the arguments for banning any of these drugs on self-harm grounds is weak. The damage of these drugs is real, but not so horrible that only a crazy person would do them. Don't get me wrong. Don't do the most dangerous drugs. You are a fool if you do. It's clearly not worth it. But if you believe in liberty, if you believe in free people making free choices, then you should want the bar for banning substances for forcing people to not do what they want, for punishing people for doing things that you don't like. The bar for bans should be very high, especially when banning an action for the sake of self-harm. In a free country, people are allowed to take risks. They're allowed to do stupid things. We're even allowed to harm ourselves in search for some greater benefit. 
the bar for using public funds for education should be lower. Large harm is plenty for that. If the scientific evidence is clear that there are substantial risks, then government informing people of the harm is justified. However, an outright ban rips that choice from you, and sane adults should be able to decide for themselves whether whatever benefits they expect to get from a drug is worth the price. Of course, there is more to ponder than self-harm. Drugs can harm others too. The enforcement of drug bans can harm people. Check out part 2 for my thoughts on the external impacts of drugs and see part 3 to learn about the effects of trying to ban these things. Part 3 also includes my total opinion informed by all three parts on which drugs should be legal. I'm Lone Candle. Like me? Covet me? Love me?